I am excited to have Joe Valley on today. Joe is a partner at Quiet Light Business Brokerage, which is over at quietlight.com. Quiet Light is a brokerage where each advisor there has bought, sold, and started their own online businesses which I think makes them pretty unique in this space. Joe himself has sold over a half dozen of his own companies, and he's mentored thousands of entrepreneurs who have a goal of eventually exiting their own businesses. He is a certified mergers and acquisitions professional, and he's been responsible for deals involving nearly a half billion dollars of transaction value. We're having Joe on today because he has also written a book called The Exitpreneur's Playbook, how to sell your online business for top dollar. And I believe that is coming out in June. And for everyone listening to this, we will have a sample chapter for you to check out if you're interested. And that can be found over at exitpreneur.io. So today, Joe is going to share with us his insight on how to exit your business for maximum value. We'll have him for Q&A throughout and at the end as well. So if you have questions and you're attending live, please get those ready. Joe, thank you so much for being with us today. Good to be here. Excited to get to the Q&A part, right? I like the presentation a little bit, but I like the Q&A a lot more. So I'm going to go ahead and do a presentation here, talk about how buyers look at your business, what's important to them, what's not, what brings value, what plummets value, and then answer all your questions along the way. And everyone live, if you have a question, just go ahead and post it in the chat and uh, I will be able to mention that to Joe as well. So... This is just the home screen of the Quiet Light website. I'm a partner there, as mentioned. But first, I was, you know, a client. I sold my own e-commerce business in 2010 before joining the team, as everybody has. Not everybody sold through Quiet Light or bought through Quiet Light, but the majority of us have, and all of us have built, bought, and sold our own e-commerce businesses before joining the team. Makes us all qualified. Okay, presentation. Uh, again, I am Joe Valley, Quiet Light Brokerage and Exitpreneur. Here's what we're going to be talking about today, how valuations are really done. And this is generally in the 25,000 to 25 million range. And as always, there's an exception to every rule. We're going to go over what's often missed and why it's only good for the buyer, things that you need to pay attention to, whether you're using a, an advisory firm like Quiet Light or if you're selling on your own. If you've got a physical product e-commerce business and you specialize in FBA, you've probably heard from one of the aggregators. If you're going to go ahead and sell on your own, you want to avoid that ignorance discount and make sure you are getting maximum value for your business. Love that. And Joe, just to set some context and ask one question up front here, most of our Fizzle members are engaged in information businesses, not necessarily FBA or fulfilled by Amazon type businesses, product businesses. And I'm just curious, you mentioned 25K to 25 million. Do you guys actually get involved at prices on the low end there? Or if someone is selling a business that's, let's say, going to be worth under six figures, do they sell on their own or can they work with a broker? They can definitely work with a broker. The challenge these days is the market is so strong that you know we're only human and we have to pick and choose what we're going to work on. Can't take everything on. And we're not a marketplace, right? We're not a listing marketplace. We're a white glove service where we're going to you know work with you from the very beginning until the very end and even after it's over. There are marketplaces like a Flippa, like Empire Flippers a little bit, where you can just uh, list business with them and they kind of specialize in the lower range. And content sites, look, we love them. It's the largest transaction I've personally closed was a, uh, a content site specializing in soap operas. So I'm a big fan of the content sites. Yeah. They're worth more and they, uh, the buyer pool is pretty strong. Let's put it that way. So, but still, e either way, you want to make sure that you're doing proper ad back schedules and all the proper things that we're going to go over here. And then I'm going to talk about deal structures because not everything is all cash. You know, on the smaller side, 
250,000, even sub million, it should be the all cash or the vast majority cash. But sometimes it might be to the owner's benefit to take uh, you know, a non-cash deal. We'll go over some of those. All right, my background, advisor with Quiet Light, books launching June 15th. Uh, and the book is really just nine years of you know uh, experience putting it all in writing. I've had eight over 8,000 one-on-one conversations with entrepreneurs about selling their content SaaS or physical product businesses. You can't cover everything in an hour or two or three or four, believe it or not. So it's there in the book. It's you know built to be the ultimate reference guide for selling your online business. I have been employed for a long time, 24 years now, since 1997. Joined Quiet Light in uh, 2012. It was founded in uh, 07 by my partner, Mark Doust. I've sold about 100 million personally and touched another half billion through uh, the team here at Quiet Light. Built, bought, sold over half a dozen of my own. And what else we get there? These are some of the examples that I've sold. Syph is a SaaS business. SoapHub is that large content site that I've sold. Color it, physical product, but a lot of content. Amazing Aces, physical product. Amazing Aces. Is that a pickleball company? You got it. That's right. I think I may have heard of them. The person that owned the business, guy named uh, Paul Anderson, is now uh, a member of the Quiet Light team. He's a CPA by training, started uh, Amazing Aces. He's got a content site as well, but uh, started Amazing Aces and we sold it a couple of years ago uh, for him. And then he joined the team uh, probably like four months ago. So good situation. All right. So this is the you know way that businesses are valued in all of these categories, SaaS content, physical products and service agencies as well. It's seller's discretionary earnings or SDE times a multiple equals the list price. It's as simple and as complicated as that because calculating seller's discretionary earnings is the toughest thing to do on your own. It's taking me a very long time to flush it out and get uh, systems and processes in place. For inventory businesses, you do add the plus the line of cost of goods sold and SaaS businesses can be converted to multiple of revenue when they get to a certain size and with certain metrics. Okay, so calculating sellers' discretionary earnings, how does it happen? No. First of all, you got to be able to run a profit loss statement. So you're going to run a profit loss, you're going to get net income at the bottom, and then you're going to do an add back schedule below that, not in QuickBooks or Zero, but after you've exported the profit and loss statement to Excel. And you're going to take bits and pieces of it that are personal in nature or non recurring in nature and not going to carry forward to the new owner of the business. And you put it below the net income line in the add back schedule. And that equals seller's discretionary earnings. I say you, but the advisor does it here at Quiet Light and the advisor has the experience. There's an entire chapter on addbacks and I've outlined three different levels of addbacks and six levels between each in the entrepreneur's playbook. And currently that's not the free chapter, but that, that, that you can download when you go to expreneur.io, but it will be one that's going to be sent in a follow-up. So you'll get that as well as uh, the chapter on deal structures. Can you just give us like an example of an ad back? Let's say that you're writing four articles a month, right? Talk content side. And you have employed a relative that's a writer. And that, right, that relative, you overpaid because you love them. <laughs> But halfway through the year, you realized I'm going to exit the business next year and I've worked it out with a relative and I'm now going to outsource to a virtual assistant in a country where the cost is much less, but they're highly educated and can write. So you're cutting your costs in half. So instead of $30,000 a year in you know writing expenses, it's really going to be $15,000 a year. And so in the ad back schedule, you would account for that, make that adjustment 
because that, that extra $15,000 doesn't carry forward because you've cut your costs in half. So you would, uh, let's say you did it halfway through the year, you're going to do an add back in the first six months because that expense already occurred. You're paying $30,000 a month. You do an add back in that first six months. The lower expense is in the second six months. So you don't do an adjustment. The add back would be zero there. But in that situation, you'd be adding $7,500 times whatever your multiple is to the bottom line. We'll get to that a little bit. That's really a, a level three add back that I jump right into. And that's really the most complicated part. Calculating this discretionary earnings is definitely 100% math and logic, but determining what the value of the business is, is really art because there's so many different factors that go into it. The sort of four pillars of what buyers want and what they don't want. I guess that's what it right there, what they want and what they fear. It's risk, growth, transferability, and documentation. These are the four pillars that the buyers came up with. We figured out that this is, this is what they were focused on and asking about over the last decade. And then we sort of formalized it. The top one there though, really that seller part should be sort of the mortar in the pillars that's holding them all together. Normally there'd be lines there, but I'm not a great artist. So there would be lines in a pillar, right? The mortar that's holding them all together. And that's the seller. That's the person behind the business. The bottom line is you have to be a good person, be a good human and build a good business for a good buyer to take over at a great price. And that great price is for both of you. If you don't do that, all of these pillars don't mean a thing. You've got to be a good human. All right. The four pillars of value are risk, growth, transferability, and documentation. Not going to go through all of these numbers, not going to read for you here on the screen, but this is what your buyers are going to look at, right? Business has to be a certain size and age before they feel comfortable paying a fair multiple for it. You'll see lots of businesses listed on Flippa that are three months old. They should be sold at a one-time multiple or you know, a one-time multiple of the three months. You can't annualize those earnings because it's crystal ball-ish. And it's a gamble. It's a bet versus a real calculation. You go over into, you know, growth opportunities, section four in growth. If you've just started writing new content and it's really, you know, starting to rank and it's bringing in new traffic and converting, or if you've identified new, uh, maybe people that are going to pay on a monthly basis for uh, an ad or a banner, or you found a new agency like Travel Fusion or something like that, that's going to add more revenue for you. Those are growth opportunities that the buyer is looking for. Transferability should be fairly obvious, but it's not always. Uh, key personality. So if you are the expert in your business, this happens a lot in content sites. So if you're the expert and you're the name and face of the business and your name is on every piece of content that goes out, think about your buyers. If I'm your buyer, I'm not a writer. I just wrote a book, right? But I'm not a writer. I can't, you know, go over how I did it, but it's, it's hard, right? You have a special skill that you're writing about and that's not transferable to me because I'm in the, now the M&A world. I can't write about prepping for disaster, for instance. So you've got to think about that and how that's going to transfer to a new owner of a business. If you don't, if you don't plan for it and prep for it, even as you're listing your business for sale, buyers are going to look at that and they are going to fear that revenue is going to drop rapidly once your name is off and my name is on and your great content is gone and I have to write stuff and I'm not as good as you. Example, I did sell a prepper site a few years ago. The woman was about 70 years old. She'd been writing about prepping for doomsday disasters for about seven years. She built up a pretty solid following, but it was all her name, her face. Name of the business was not her name and face. Fortunately, it was something different. But the buyers 
didn't really come out of the woodworks to buy the business. We had two or three offers. A couple of them weren't very strong. One was the right price in terms of value, but they still had a fear of her going away and what that would be like. So what we did in that situation was she did have to kind of stick around for up to a year. But the way that she had to stick around was that she didn't have to write the content anymore, but her name was still going to be on it. She just had to approve the content. The writers from the new company were going to write it and they were going to slowly work in guest writers. And eventually it was going to be a post a week from, you know, a non key figure, a key personality that got the business sold. But if she had been, you know, a cooking business that, you know, cooking side about cooking with Jennifer, you might want to just put an S there and cooking with Jennifer's and always have a, a guest Jennifer or a caricature instead of just you being the Jennifer. I'm getting the sense that this is the kind of thing that a broker advisor is there for to, to help negotiate these situations and also to help the, if you're representing the seller to present the business in the best light, if there are going to be some issues along one of these four pillars. Absolutely. The most important thing is to think about these things long before you sell so that you can prep for them and adjust so that the value of your business is not going to be hurt, right? Because if you plan in advance for the sale and you can fix these things, you're going to get a higher multiple. You're going to build trust and you're going to get a higher multiple. If you wait until the end, we can still adjust for it, but the buyer pool is not going to be as big because there's going to be a lot of fear there. And therefore your multiple and your offers may not be as big, as lucrative, or as nice of a deal structure like all cash. So the best thing to do is, is to plan for it. I, I know planning makes people's eyes bleed, but and that's the point of the book so that you can just digest it at your own pace and you know go through it here and there. And real quick uh, question from Stephen Burkhardt, who's listening live here. He just wanted to know, so for those who are the face of their business, you're saying that they basically either need to, ahead of time, hopefully, rebrand or somehow transfer the face to someone else, or it has to be negotiated with, with the buyer. Yeah. So if you, if it's really your face, right, in this form, not a character, not a, not a cartoon-ish drawing, then your face is going to have to stick around if that's what people go to and they see it and they trust you. So you might want to just have a drawing done of you to start with and something subtle as you're preparing to have an eventual exit. Other options are, depending upon the type of site, I can't see hands raised, but uh, I got to meet Alex from uh, Travel Fashion Girl two years ago now because of the pandemic. She is the name and face of the business. She travels, she blogs, she vlogs, she talks about her travel experiences, and lots of traffic generates lots of revenue from affiliates and content providers and things of that nature. But she had a problem. She couldn't sell her business. So what she did was to create a sellable asset because she's in the travel business, she created a line of travel accessories that were separate that she promoted. And so she was able to get them off and launched because of her list, but it's a separate entity that will grow on its own and does not have her name and face on it. And she'll be able to sell that off. The other thing you can do as the name and face of the business is most of the time when the business gets to a certain size, you still love certain aspects about it, right? Like I love podcasting. I don't enjoy some of the stuff I have to grind out every day in the M&A world. If I were to sell quiet light. And I'd be happy to continue podcasting because I really enjoy it. But some of the other stuff that I'm grinding out every day, the new owner could take over. So, you know, if you're the key personality and you love certain aspects of it, you can say, Hey, look, I'm willing to do it for another year or two or on a retainer basis or a consulting basis while you guys do that stuff that I hate. That's another option for you as well. 
Okay. Documentation is the most important factor, right? So the valuation is going to be clear math and logic. It's only 10%, but without it, you're not selling your business. And that means, you know, if you're just doing things in an Excel spreadsheet in the back of a napkin, I've been there. I've done that. It doesn't work when you want to get to a business being sold for maximum value. QuickBooks is zero. There are plenty of good e-commerce bookkeepers that will do that work for you for next to nothing. And they'll do it with accrual accounting, even content sites. You know, it's harder, but you know, if you're growing that content site that I showed you earlier, I had it listed for $5 million initially, and we got it under contract pretty quickly. We had three offers. And then I'm driving home from uh, an event on a Saturday and I get a call from the owner of the business. And that's always bad, right? On a Saturday, I get a call. And it turns out that the business had just exploded. He made $300,000 in the prior month. And he said, Joe, I'm running the numbers and I just can't sell it at $5 million. And uh, the problem was that back then, it was his business was set up on cash accounting. If it was accrual, he would have had those numbers in the P&L and it would have been projected anyway minor adjustments, but it was growing so quickly, we weren't capturing the next month, right? Most of the time you get paid out 30, 60, 90 days. If you're growing rapidly, you're not capturing that in your trailing 12 months. Your trailing 12 months should be accrual based and capture that revenue and that growth. If you're not, if you're growing at an extra $10,000 in profit per month, and you don't get paid for 60 days, that's $20,000. Actually, that's more than that because you're growing at 10,000 a month, over 10,000 a month. Just take that 20,000 times a four-time multiple. You just lost $80,000 because you're doing cash accounting. Yeah, and just to clarify, someone just asked, why accrual accounting? And I think this is the perfect example here. And just to put it in a different light, if you're doing cash accounting, you don't book the revenue from, let's say you're a podcaster and you have a sponsor, you don't actually book that revenue until the check clears at your bank. If you're doing accrual accounting, you send them an invoice and that revenue counts the day that you issue that invoice. So even if you, like Joe said, sometimes you don't get paid for 30 or 60 or 90 days or whatever. So accrual accounting you're saying is in the interest of the seller, but it's also at a certain point just kind of expected when a business is to a certain level of sophistication, right? Yeah. And it could also be in the interest of a buyer, right? That part about being a good human and doing things right. If your business is declining and you're doing cash accounting, your trailing 12 months is in a cash accounting basis is stronger than it truly is if you're doing cash accounting. Accrual accounting is the the standard accepted practice. And that's what you should be doing. If you're not doing it, welcome to the club. I didn't do accrual accounting when I first started my company. I, I didn't even know how to reconcile accounts when I, I had quickened back in the day. It's just a process of growing that you've got to go through. There are plenty of good e-commerce bookkeepers that are available that can do it for you. And that's what I would advise. You're good at developing and marketing content sites. You're not a good bookkeeper. Don't hire one in-house because it could be done for, you know, a couple of hundred dollars if the business is not complicated, a couple hundred dollars a month. I have a simple one that I, I pay $50 a month. Super simple. At Fizzle, I'll tell you, we've had the same accountant who's actually a CPA and she does our books and we've had her for, I don't know, five or six years and it's $150 a month and it is just peace of mind. It's an extra couple of hours that I don't have to spend on the business. And then also it just adds a level of transparency. If you ever need to show someone your books, if you're trying to bring a partner on or whatever, then you can say these are done independently and it just gives people a little bit of peace of mind. Yeah, it saves you some time. No question. In that time you can focus on more profitable things, but it's also done right. 
I have a degree in finance, been self-employed for 24 years. I analyze profit loss statements every single day, but that doesn't make me a good bookkeeper. You know, so I hire the professionals to do it. It's not expensive. It's cheaper than hiring somebody and bringing them in-house. Not only does it save you time and money, but it's also done right. And that will help you when you do eventually exit for your business. It actually will help you as you plan your exit, right? You want to pick a dollar amount. How much am I going to exit for? And then go, okay, where am I today? What's my business worth? And how long is it going to take me to get there? And how do I get there? And you can't do that without clean financials. All right, value ranges this is what everybody wants to jump to. What are the multiple ranges today? I'm going to skip by a couple of these. Product-based, you don't care about. Content businesses. You know, it's in the same value range as, you know, physical product businesses. I honestly, guys, I love content sites. They're my favorite to sell. They're clean. They're simple. There's more buyers for them most of the time. Right now, we've got a lot of aggregators buying up FBA businesses, but they're uncomplicated. And unless you're cheating, right, they're, they're generally solid businesses. I bought one after I sold my last e-commerce business in 2010. I bought a content site that had six keywords on page one. Then it got hit by the Penguin update. So it didn't last very long for me. Quarter of a million dollars gone. So you got to do it right. No black hat, white hat SEO. We all know what to look for here at Quiet Light. Your buyers are going to know what to look for. If they don't, they're going to hire a due diligence company like Centurica, C-E-N-T-U-R-I-C-A, and they're going to know what to look for. And they'll see, you know, backlink profiles that are not appropriate or, you know, a second site that's driving all the traffic that you own, things of that nature. And in that case, you really need to sell both sites altogether. But these are the value ranges. As you can see, a smaller business is worth less, right? Because odds are it's younger. It's less mature. It's not as diverse. And therefore, it's a little riskier. A lot of people think, I'm just going to, I'm going to hedge my bets. I'm going to take less risk and buy a few smaller businesses. And that's actually more risky than buying a larger business. If you get a business that's doing over a million dollars in discretionary earnings, it's pretty well established. It's growing. It's doing well. It's diverse. It's not all, you know, getting all of its traffic from one keyword or one article, right? It's probably very diverse and the multiples go up pretty substantially. These ranges, by the way, are broad intentionally because 10% is math, 90% is art, and it all depends upon a number of other factors. We're going to skip over the SaaS stuff here. Just briefly here, Stephen, maybe he missed the first slide or, or just the very introduction, but he's asking what multiples mean. And uh, I'll just explain it and you can let me know, Joe, if, if this is correct or not. So SDE stands for Seller's Discretionary Earnings, and that's essentially earnings in your business that go in your pocket as the seller. And you can add back a few things that are non-recurring. It's a form of adjusted earnings, basically. And that typically will be a little bit higher than what your net income is at the end of the day. So you take that seller's discretionary earnings, STE, and you multiply it by a number. And this is the range that Joe is showing us right now, which for most businesses, it looks like is something between three and six, depending on where your revenue falls. If it's $100,000, you might get a 3X SDE. If you have a million dollar business, you might get six or more multiple on your SDE. That's it. Yeah. Except that the SDE is not money you're putting in your pocket. I think the best way to understand sellers discretionary earning is owner's benefit, right? It's not cash flow, but how are you benefiting from the business? You're writing off your mobile phone. That expense is not going to transfer to me when I buy your business. I have one. If I don't have one, I shouldn't buy it a content site, you know, a lot of those things, your home office expense is not an expense that's going to carry forward to me 
because I have a home office and I'll write that off myself. Some of those things are owner benefits, but they don't carry forward to the new owner of the business. So therefore they're an ad back. And again, Stephen, it was that net income on your PL plus ad backs equals seller's discretionary earnings. The multiple that we're looking at here is what is applied to the seller's discretionary earnings to get the value of your business. What's missing is good for the buy. I call this the ignorance discount simply because there's way too many people that say, I got this, right? We all have that entrepreneurial affliction. I can do that. I got this. I do it all the time. My wife rolls her eyes at me and tells me to shut up and hire somebody else to do it. She's right. And in this case, uh, I'm right because you haven't done this for a decade. You haven't seen the amazing exits and incredible failures that I've seen. And you know, buyers are going to buy my book more than sellers in some cases because they are buying direct and they want to look at a business and go, okay, they didn't do that ad back. They didn't do that ad back. They did, oh, I'm getting $42,000 in instant equity. So what's missing is really good for the buyer and you want to avoid that ignorance discount by understanding ad backs and the three different levels of ad backs. So these are pretty basic ad backs. Owners benefit a payroll, right? So if a business is generating zero net income, but you pay yourself a $100,000 salary, the business isn't worth zero. It's worth 100,000 times the multiple if your salary is the only add back. Non-cash expenses, this is part of EBITDA, right? Depreciation, amortization. One-time non-recurring expenses, your website design, right? You don't do that every year. If you spend $15,000 on your website design or redesign, and you do it every three years historically, but you just did it last year, and you're selling your business now, it's at least a partial ad back. So if you do it every three years, maybe we know that that is going to recur again in three years. So maybe you're adding back 10,000 of the expense instead of the whole 15,000. It's at the very least a partial ad back. I sold a business that was a content site in the wedding space and they had just redesigned the website first time in five years and they spent $20,000 on it. That first time in five years. So it was a hundred percent ad back because that's not going to recur for at least another five years if the website design was done well. A little more complicated there. And then adjustments reflecting the new normal. Again, that was the example of, you know, the overpaid relative doing your writing and then you outsourced it, adjustments for the new normal. You're trying to arrive at a reasonable assumption for baseline expenses that the new buyer will have in the future. Yeah, and it's, it's gotta be black and white. Math and logic, there's no gray here and say, well, if you only do this, or if you just did this, you know, th that doesn't sell. It's gotta be mathematical in the P&L and in the ABAC schedule. So we're gonna jump to the three different levels. This is, this is the most important stuff, guys. And if, if you take anything away from this, you wanna dive into this part and become an expert in the ADVEX because people lose tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars when they sell direct because they don't do a proper ADVEX schedule. Level one is the obvious. We've got three different levels and under each, there's going to be six different components to it. All of that should be fairly obvious once you understand the concept of an ADVEX. Level two is not as obvious. People do a, an ADVEX for their owner's salary, but if they're on payroll, they're paying payroll taxes. Payroll taxes are also an ad back. I give an example in the book where somebody that's getting paid $43,000 a quarter here in North Carolina, the payroll tax expense on that annualized is about $13,000. If the business was sold at a three-time multiple, that's $39,000. If you don't do an ad back for that, you're giving the buyer instant equity of $39,000. Some of these other things, pretty obvious, but a lot of people miss them. It's this level three where people miss most of the ad backs and lose a ton of money. That website redesign, mastermind groups, right? Y'all pay to be part of this, 
right? Paying it on a monthly basis. Uh, that doesn't transfer with the sale of your business. And your buyer may be part of a different mastermind group that you know they prefer to pay for. Hear that, folks? Your fizzle membership dues. Make sure you count those as an ad back so that you get paid for it in the sale. Love it. Cashback or converted rewards. If you have a lot of expenses that you do on your cashback card, most people slide those over to their personal accounts, take the cash or just have the rewards pile up and use it for personal travel and things of that nature. But if it's business related, it should be added back in your P&L. And so that, you know, you can't add back a lump sum in month 12 of your P&L when you're selling the business and do it for the history of your business. You've got to look at each month and how much you got in cash back or how many reward points you got and convert it to cash on paper. You don't have to cash them in, just on paper. And then add it to the P&L in each and every month. I've seen ad backs in that case account for like $150,000. These are fairly large businesses. They're spending a lot of money. $150,000 that would have been completely missed because people think, well, I'm kind of cheating because I'm just putting that in my personal account. That's not the case. The cash back from your credit card companies is a discount on your purchases or on your advertising. Here in the States, the IRS hasn't figured out quite how to tax that. So they just shrug their shoulders and they don't know what to do with it. But it's absolutely an owner benefit, right? If we go back to that owner benefit, you know, title, it's much easier to understand. So definitely cash back or converter points. The overpaid relatives. Reduced cost of goods sold doesn't count here, but you can go to that relative situation. Third-party fees as well. I don't know what the third-party fees would be here. Maybe uh, your hosting services and, you know, you saved $100 a month by going with a new hosting service. You did it six months ago. Well, that's $600 that gets added back. And that's, you know, $1,800 added to the, to the list price of a business if it's only a three-time multiple. This is really not going to help you much, but I want you to think about this in terms of other expenses. I guess you have cost of goods sold in the form of staff writers and things of that nature. And you could think about this in terms of, you know, if you renegotiate your advertising costs with advertisers, meaning what you're getting paid whether it's Tribal Fusion or anybody else that you use, if you save money, $1.80 or whatever the amount might be, it's an ad back. Let's think about it this way. If your costs of goods sold go up in the trailing 12 months, let's say three months, you're selling your business. And in the last three months, your cost of goods sold go up. I, as your buyer, I'm going to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Your cost of goods sold have gone up. That new cost is going to carry forward to me. The new cost is, let's say, $500 a month. Well, I've got to go back to those nine months and put a negative $500 on each of those months. So there's $4,500 off your discretionary earnings times your multiple on discount in the purchase price of your business by that much. That's what buyers will do. As a seller, if you've reduced your costs in the 12 months prior to selling, it's the same thing. That reduction carries forward to the new owner of the business, and you've got to do that adjustment in the ad back schedule. 99% of sellers that do this on their own miss this, and they lose a ton of dough. Again, in this example, this is actually a real example, $25,000 difference, the business sold for 3.3, right? If he hadn't done it, if I hadn't done it with this person, if he had sold on his own, he got approached by somebody, he didn't know to do it. 3.3 times 25, we got an additional $82,000, on this ad back alone. You got to look at it from a buyer's point of view. What are they going to look at if costs went up? Well, your costs went down, so you're going to make sure that that is, is covered because it does carry forward. This reminds me a lot of working with, let's say, someone to do your taxes for your business. You can look at it in one way and say, oh, there's an expense of whatever, $500 or $1,000 to get your business taxes done. But 
a good accountant will know where to look for discounts and benefits and things that you might overlook. I'm getting the sense this is the same thing. If you have a good broker, they know where to look for all of these little things that you might have forgotten about that could easily cost you $80,000. And you're calling this the ignorance discount, basically. For a seller who just wants to do it on their own, they might cost themselves $80,000 without thinking about it because maybe they didn't want to work with a broker. Let's be crystal clear. This is not a pitch to work with a broker. There is a broker logo in the lower left and a book logo in the lower right. Everything we're talking about here in great detail is covered in the Entrepreneur's Playbook. I give it all away. It's what we do at Quietlight. We always have. It kind of gives you enough information to be dangerous. Kind of like a get your brown belt and uh, you think you're tough. In my case, I, I was actually a yellow belt and I thought I was tough. And then some kid kicked me in the ribs because he had a brown belt and I was on the ground pretty quickly. I wasn't very tough at all. It's enough to be dangerous in a sense, but it's going to give you a really good head start. And more than anything else, I think what it does, when you begin to realize the potential value of what you have, those tough days get a lot easier. You get motivated to get through and around those hurdles every day in your business because you're marching towards an eventual exit goal. And when you get to that dollar value because you've figured it out because you're reverse engineering a path to your exit. When you get to that value, your business is worth that much. You may be in such great shape and so happy and enjoying it that you're just going to move the goalpost. But it's, I, I think, an essential tool to an entrepreneur's toolbox every day. You need to understand the value. And that's why it's all going to be there in writing because most people don't feel comfortable talking with an advisor broker because they feel like they're going to try to talk them into listing their business for sale. And that's, that's not what the right ones do. Moving on. Next slide. This is an example of a profit and loss statement with all of the possible addbacks in all three levels of the addback schedule. This never happens just to be crystal clear, but it shows you the potential of what addbacks can do. Top line is total net income, $297,000. $140,000 in addbacks. Total discretionary earnings is now $438,000. It's an enormous difference. You take that 140 and you apply it to a multiple of three and you're adding $420,000 to the list price of the business. If your business is one-tenth the size of this, it's still a lot of money. If your business is 10 times larger, it's even more money, especially because your multiple is going to go up pretty dramatically. Addbacks are critical. If you don't pay attention to those, you're going to lose a ton of dough. Okay, I'll stop harping on addbacks. I could go off on them. Really important. All right, so as you're selling your business, there are some common deal structures that definitely work for both parties. Everybody knows what cash is, right? And then there's seller notes, holdbacks, earn notes, stability payments, rolling equity, working capital pegs, and inventory notes. A couple of those are not going to be totally relevant to what most people listening to this do every day, but we're going to go through the ones that are. All right, so variations of cash offers. So it's not just I'm going to give you $100,000 and be on my merry way or you'll be on your merry way. There's going to be variations to it. Now, cash plus a holdback. A holdback is essentially a carrot for you, the seller, to help me during a training and transition period. If I'm going to give you $100,000 for your business, I might hold back $10,000. Not in my bank account because that's not going to make you feel comfortable. You think you're never going to get it. It's all going to go into an escrow account. You're going to transfer control of the assets of the business to me. Then 90,000 of it's going to be released to you by the attorneys per the asset purchase agreement. But 10,000 is going to stay there during the training and transition period. What's the training and transition period? It's a time when you teach me to operate the business. I ask you questions. You don't run the business for me. I'm running the business now. 
and I'm asking you questions as I need to. The language is typically up to 40 hours over the first 90 days after closing. The up to and over is critical, in my opinion. That way you're not locked into, oh, I got to work 10 hours a week for this person. You're not working for them. You're helping them understand how to run your business. And the up to and over makes it very loose. Most buyers never use that amount. Most buyers want that amount put in writing because they fear how hard it's going to be to run the business afterwards. And then they realize it's not all that complicated, especially if you've done a good job with documentation on those four pillars and you put SOPs in place. It's going to be easier for you as a seller to move on more quickly after the business is sold. Cash plus a stability payment. If you Google stability payment, you're not going to get a good definition here. It essentially... The way that private equity firms are stepping into this space, they're buying up and building portfolios of content sites, SaaS businesses, FBA businesses, and they're feeling like these are are risky businesses. They came up with the term stability payment. Basically, it says, if the total revenues of the business are within 90% of the trailing 12 months, 12 months after I bought it, I'm going to give you the stability payment that's been held back in escrow. It's kind of a holdback, but they call it a stability payment. It's just a tricky way for them not to give you as much cash at closing, in my opinion. And in most cases, it's 25%. So if you're selling a business for a million dollars, they may look for a stability payment of $250,000. You know, if your business is doing $500,000 in revenue and you end up doing $450,000 in revenue, you'll get that stability payment. The problem is if you do $449,999, you lose that quarter of a million dollars. So you've got to do a sliding scale. They'll say... 90%. What you want to say is 90% is fine, but if it's between 85% and less than 90%, I'm getting 200,000. If it's between 80 and 85, I'm getting, and then you can do the opposite. If it's above 100, if it's 100 to 105, I'm going to get 300,000, right? Get creative and work those things. You don't want to have it, you know, a fine line of one tenth to 1% be the difference between a quarter of a million dollars. Cash plus a seller note. Everybody knows what a seller note is. These should be small. You're not a bank. People can't get loans for the most part. The majority of businesses are are hard to get uh, an SBA loan for. You've got to have two to three years worth of solid tax returns and you can't be growing like crazy in the last 12 months. Otherwise, they take an average of the last three years tax returns to determine how much they can loan on the business. It's just math. So sometimes a buyer is going to give you cash plus and ask for a seller note. The largest one I've seen in my nine years of doing this is 50%, way too much. But it's because the buyer and the seller absolutely loved each other. They were like long lost sisters and it worked really well for the seller. She was near retirement age, but wasn't ready to uh, start using her retirement funds. So they loved each other and they just did a 50% seller note because she believed in the business, she believed in the buyer and the note was secured personally and by the business itself. And it was short. It was 50% and it was five years, which still is long. Generally, I'm going to see anywhere between 10 and 25%. And I don't like any more than three years. In fact, I prefer 12 months, one year. And in some cases, even shorter. It's just a way for buyers to build up some cash after closing you know, to hold off on a seller note in some ways. Cash plus an earnout. This is generally reserved for businesses that are more risky or that are growing rapidly, right? So you're trying to capture some of the future growth because you're growing at 200%, you're ready to cash out. You might sell the business for, you know, if it's a million bucks uh, for sale for a million, you might take 750 plus, you know, a higher earnout. You may shoot for, you know, another 500,000. If it's cash sale, it's going to sell for a million, but if it's plus an earnout, it might sell for a 1.2. 
And the best way to do an earn out is a percentage of total revenue, not gross profit or net income. Those two are fuzzy math and can be manipulated. Just go for a smaller percentage of total revenue. Cash plus an equity role, right? So actually this, this is role is spelled wrong. It should be R-O-L-L because you, you're, not, you're not playing a role in the company. You're just rolling equity to a new co. I buy your business, the million bucks. Uh, I'm bringing it into my portfolio. I've got 20 content sites. And because of the sheer volume of businesses that I have, if I were to sell it, it's worth 10 times, but I'm buying yours at four times because it's a single entity uh, and it's not worth 10. I'm going to roll it into mine. Instantly it becomes worth 10 times. So if your business is worth a million bucks and you want to roll 25%, I'm going to give you 750 in cash. 250 is going to be rolled into this new code that's going to be created as a subsidiary of the larger company that's holding my 20 entities. And you're going to own 25% of that new code. And then that $250,000 on paper instantly becomes worth 2.5 million. The downside is you have to stress about whether that seller is going to grow the company and eventually sell it and get you that equity. The upside is that if, if you get the patience, there's a real good chance you're going to get an, another healthier, much larger payout. Cash plus some of all of the above. It could be a mixture of all these different things. Then the rest of these are, you know, basic things that you want to focus on when you're doing the seller notes. Secured personally, 12 to 36 months. Make sure it's a fair and reasonable interest rate. You're not a bank. And if you do the math on a $100,000 seller note, an extra percentage point or two or three is not going to, you know, move the dial all that much. You just want to be fair and reasonable. And you definitely want to hire an attorney to draft the asset purchase agreement and the seller note to make sure it's it's secured so that you take the business back and you can go after the seller for the balance if they uh, default. Holdbacks again, most often with cash deals, that training and transition period, you definitely want to have the language in the asset purchase agreement. And it's pretty simple. It's going to be held back and then it's simply going to be released. In uh, you know my nine years of doing this, I've only had one holdback not released. And it's because the seller just disappeared off the face of the earth. Literally, we don't know where she is or what she did. My buyer and his son flew to Texas to meet her, met her, her kids, had a great conversation, came back very motivated, bought the business. She transferred the assets and then she disappeared. We didn't know where she went. We sent the sheriff down and all this stuff. But the escrow attorney and the buyer's attorney uh, determined that uh, she didn't withhold the trading attorneys in part and they released that. Again, earnouts reserved for businesses in trouble are just the opposite. Make that payment a percentage of total revenue, not gross profit or anything else that can be manipulated. Even if you love your buyer and your long-lost sisters or long-lost brothers, when that long-lost sister or long-lost brother has financial hardship, that person's family is going to be first and foremost in protecting them and the assets. You're going to come at the expense there. So they'll manipulate figures. And I've seen it done once, and that's one too many times. And in general, I mean, whether you're selling your business or maybe you're just partnering with another business and you're earning some sort of profit share, it's always better to go with a revenue share if you can, because it's the number that can't be manipulated in the same way. Yeah, absolutely. And then you want to make sure you get monthly payments. People want to give annual payouts. Well, you're going to stress for a year. You're going to wonder for a year. Even semi-annual or quarterly to me is, is just too much. I would go with monthly payments so they remove the doubt. And don't get a check. It should just be, you know, an ACH that's posited to your account by the, you know, fifth of every month or fifteenth of every month, so they've got time to to reconcile accounts. The earnouts can have a financial cap. So, you know, I'm going to pay you five percent of total revenue up to two hundred thousand dollars. It's kind of a a nice, neat little 
way to, to draft and earn that agreement. The upside for you, the buyer, is that if business stagnates and doesn't grow at the same pace as when I owned it, that earn out, you can structure it. So based upon historical growth, so it would take two years. If business stagnates and, and flattens a little bit, it's going to take longer to pay me out because I'm going to get up to $200,000, 5% of revenue. For me, the seller, the upside is that if you grow the business at 50% year over year, instead of my 25% year over year, it's not going to take me two years to get paid out. I'll get paid out a little bit quicker. But that cap is important. You don't want to pay 5% forever. Cap is really important. Keep it short. Again, do the math on that. You want to make sure it's short. And the last most important thing is have view-only access to things that you can look at. Um, you know, if there are third-party accounts that are showing your payments and I'm buying your business, but I'm paying you a seller note, I want to give you view-only access to that so you can see how much I'm getting paid so you can sort of do your math, make sure that I'm paying you the right amount. Trust, but verify. Trust, but verify. Yep. And then there's that stability payment again. It's a, it's a tricky one. You always want to do that uh, sliding scale. Rolling equity. I spelled this one right. I'm glad I did that partially. There's a lot of benefits to both sides. You just have to have the right buyer. Right? And they've got to be better, smarter, and more well-funded than you are and more motivated than you are with a much higher exit goal. The working capital pegs is something that you know most of you guys are not going to have to worry about. It really comes from the private equity world. And I'll, I'll just call it what it is. It's, it's a tool for the private equity buyers to renegotiate things in due diligence. A working capital peg is essentially a dollar amount that they want you to contribute to the purchase price of the business to cover their cost of running the business for two to three months after buying the business. And so their logic is, look, I don't want to pay you a million dollars and then have to come to the table with another 300000 for operating expenses in the first three months. It's nice logic on their part, but we don't do working capital pegs, period. They have to work that into the purchase price of the business. If they're looking for anything, some of the folks will look for, if it's an inventory-based business, some of the private equity companies will look for a month or two worth of inventory at no cost. We fight it tooth and nail because it's just cash out of the seller's pocket. This is really a, a middle market tool to renegotiate and due diligence because it's fuzzy math. They'll come up with accounts receivable, accounts payable, overhead, all sorts of things. Just avoid it at all costs. Just do it. You don't want to deal with it. Inventory notes, you don't have to worry about it for the most part. If there's anybody that carries inventory, easiest way to make your buyer love you is do a short seller note on inventory. It's money they don't have to come up with at closing. And if you give them a 60-day grace period and then a six-month seller note, uh, the business is essentially going to pay for it. They just buy the inventory over time out of cash flow, essentially. Essentially. Yeah. This is not a contingency. It's not consignment, right? I'm buying the business and that part of the purchase price, well, I'm buying the inventory. But if the inventory is $100,000, I don't have to come up with $100,000. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay you a seller note just for that inventory over three to 12 months. Okay. So this is the cover of the book. It comes out June 15th. Gino Wickman gave me a great endorsement. There's a lot of folks that you've, you may know that are great content developers, writers, things of that nature that have endorsed the book as well. This is the website to get a free chapter on structuring the deal. It's all about you know the cash, the seller note, the earn out, all those things, but in tremendous detail. And then from this, you're also going to get a follow-up email from me that will give you chapter 11, which is uh, the three levels of addbacks. It goes into 
you know, there's six points under each level and it goes into all the math and logic behind it in tremendous detail that I couldn't do in a three hour presentation. It's all there for you. It's a lot. It makes your eyes bleed, but it's a great tool to go back to and, and reference but necessary if you're going to sell or buy. And for people that are listening to this and not able to see the slides, this is over at exitpreneur.io if you want to get the free chapter from Joe there. Joe, I have a couple of questions here. Sharon Tewksbury-Bloom is on the call and she says that my customers are government agencies. Have you seen a successful business sale in which the clients or customers are government? And is there anything that is considered differently in that case? Uh, yes, I have. And the key thing here is the transferability pillar. So if you have a business that's not going to transfer, if the revenues that you know are driven by the company are contractually set up, but those contracts don't transfer, you don't have a sellable business. So when you're negotiating these contracts, you need to put in there subtly with a good attorney that the contract's transfer with a sale. When I sold my business, I had a, a developer that got a paid a percentage of my revenues, very small percentage, mind you, but it's a deal that I negotiated. And in that contract, I made sure that that contract transferred in the event I sold the business. And that gave peace of mind and security to the buyer and allowed me to sell my business with no major snafus, no risk associated with it. Love it. And you know, for people listening to this, I think you also need to consider that all of the things that Joe is talking about are important for estate planning as well. Just, I mean, in the unlikely horrible event of your passing, you would want your spouse or, you know, whoever your heirs are to be able to sell the business after the fact. And if they find out that it's not sellable for some reason, because the contracts aren't transferable or whatever, even if you're not planning to sell your business anytime soon, these are all important things. And, and when Joe talked about planning, I think this is the perfect example of the kind of planning. Yeah. Look, I hate the word planning too, right? I, you know, I, I call it training in the book. You know, if you're going to run a 5k, you're not just going to run a 5k. You're going to have to train for it. And, you know, odds are this business that you're running today is one of your most valuable assets and you have to prepare for it. You are going to exit it someday. You're going to die. You're going to get divorced. You're going to pass it on to your kids. Your competition's going to take it away. You're, gonna, you're not going to run it forever. So as Corbett just said, you know, get it in good shape estate planning wise. Awesome. We have another follow-up here from Sharon. She said, my clients are in a very specific niche. There are only about 35 companies who serve that niche, most of which are very small businesses. How would I be able to figure out if there is a possible buyer looking within those 35 or looking at a complementary business maybe who might want to get into this audience? So she's saying in the whole world, there are only about 35 businesses that serve this particular customer or this, this niche of customers it sounds actually very sellable because the competition is not great. There's only 35 companies that do this. And so that would, you know, on the surface, make the business look even more attractive because it's harder to get into it. The barrier entries are higher. So therefore that's the art part, right? The math and the logic is calculating discretionary earnings. The art part is talking and drilling down into those parts and pieces of a business to determine where in that multiple range your business would fall. In some cases, you might be at the bottom, some in the middle, some you go beyond, you know, that top line range. We'd focus in on those things. Love it. And Joe, I just wanted to hit on a couple of nuggets from the book that I really liked. One is a quote early in the book. You talk about the fact that for most people, more than 50% of all the money that you'll ever make from your business comes on the day that you sell it. That's incredible. And I, I think a lot of us don't think of it that way, but that's how the math works. 
Yeah, especially if it's a you know business that's less than two, three, four years old, because you are grinding it out. You're reinvesting everything you can in the business. It's in an inventory based business. It's going like crazy. You just all the cash flow is going inventory, or you know if you're doing a lot of content development early on until it settles down and you've reached that tipping point where it's big enough, you're not able to actually live off the business really, really well. So in most cases, the way people make the most money through their business is the day they sell and then they can do it again. That's what an extrapreneur is, right? They're not an entrepreneur, but they're an exitpreneur. They're going to build it. They're going to sell it. They've gained knowledge and experience and can do it again, a little smarter, a little wiser with a lot less stress and some money in the bank as well. I wanted to ask you about that in the book. You said, I thought that I was just an entrepreneur and I thought that entrepreneurs were supposed to hold on to their creations until the bitter end. But now when you talk about the fact that you can almost get double paid for your business because you get paid while you're running it and you're earning that cash along the way. And then when you sell it, if you're going to earn 50% of the total from that sale, then it's almost like, you know, maybe you worked on a business for five years, you sell it. And then you get this like huge payday that amounts to all that you've earned over those five years. So I can imagine that sort of like in the real estate market, some people probably get addicted to buying and selling and earning and moving on to the next project. Do you see that? Do you know people who are building businesses or buying and building them up and then selling them and moving on to the next project and rinse and repeat? Absolutely. There's different benefits, like in real estate, certain levels, you hold a business for a couple of years, you can earn up to uh, half a million dollars tax-free in the States. With the sale of a business like this, it's a capital gain, not personal income. So your taxes are going to be lower, at least for now. <laughs> we'll see what happens in 2022. But there's benefits to it in the sense that it is definitely a, a capital gains tax instead of a personal tax as well. We just had a sale. I'll cover it real quickly. We just had a sale that closed last week where somebody bought a business. She was a, a branch manager at a Bank of America and she bought a business with an SBA loan, about $1.2, $1.3 million. It exploded during the pandemic and that growth continues still. She just sold it for $5.5 million. She is an entrepreneur thrown through. She's going to buy another one and she's going to do it again. One geeky question for you on the taxation piece. Have you worked with anyone who sold their business under the qualified small business stock program? I personally have not, no. Yeah, we're going to have a referral list of tax advisors on the site, and I'm sure they'll know about it, but you want to give us some insight to what it is? It's a program where you can sell your business and claim up to, I believe, $10 million tax-free, but the business has to, you have to have operated it for at least five years and it has to be a C corporation specifically. So this is something that was enacted in 2010. And because it took five years for anyone to have a business that would qualify, it's only been around for the past like five or seven years that people would care about it. So we might be hearing about it even more. Yeah. And C corporations, this would be a stock sale instead of an asset sale. And buyers are starting to get a little bit more comfortable with it. You know, folks in my shoes, you know, there's no national licensing for business brokering, right? It's all on a state by state basis. So everyone in my shoes that works with 100% internet businesses only, you'd have to register in all 50 states. Then there's the international licensing and it's no one in my space that does it. It's still gray and we're not even sure if doing it in all 50 states would work. And so you, you focus primarily on asset sales, yeah. Yeah, but, but there's a clause in all of the engagement letters that simply says, if it flips, if you, the seller and the buyer decide to do a stock sale, we have a clause that accounts for that. And then we become administrators instead of uh, you know, commission-based brokers. 
Joe, this has been just a wealth of knowledge. <laughs> I could imagine we could have like a week long seminar just to cover all of these points in more detail. Thank you so much for coming on today. Any wise words of wisdom you want to leave with people? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I had a conversation with somebody. I, I sold his business not too long ago. He's an influencer in the space. Uh, if I said his name, a lot of you, you folks might know who he is. He said, he's like, Joe, I, I knew what to do. I always knew what I would needed to do and I would get to it someday. That was my plan. I was just going to get to it someday. And then I woke up and someday was here. And when someday was here for him, it was too late to achieve his goals. He had four businesses in an umbrella company and he was tired. He was emotionally done and he was worn out and he was financially stressed and he just wanted to sell and move on and focus on the fun stuff that he does. Three of the four businesses could not be sold. Two were new and he was just launching them and they were negative. No point in selling a negative, you know, profit loss statement. And the third was not transferable because there was one particular component of it where he was a reseller and that person that owned the patent on it refused to transfer it to anybody else because they love this person so much. They've since worked it out and he'll exit someday, but someday is going to be here. So don't wait for it to get here. The book is not going to cost you anything. <laughs> if you buy it the week of June 15th, it's going to be 99 cents for the Kindle book. Study it, pay attention to it because someday will come up and bite you and you know what and cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars or you know, you're not achieving your dream if you're ready to exit right away. Joe, thank you again. Everyone, you can find Joe Valley over at quietlight.com, the brokerage that he is a partner at. And you can find the book that he talked about over at exitpreneur.io. It is scheduled to launch in mid-June. And as Joe said, if you get on the list there, you'll find out when it's available and you can pick it up for 99 cents. Sounds like a heck of a deal. Thank you so much, Joe. 